Stacey Brenner. And I'm Rick Bennett. And, and we, we are, are Seatmates. Seatmates. We serve together in the Maine Senate. And we sit next to each other in the Legislature's Environment and Natural Resources Committee. So we chat a lot about the issues before us. About how government works and doesn't. And we realized we're on a journey together through policymaking. Stacy is a Democrat and she chairs the committee. Rick is a Republican who once served as Senate President. In the Senate, we learn a lot and hear many stories. We thought we'd like to share them with you. And give you a sense, too, of how your elected representatives tackle issues, debate, and collaborate, and otherwise make policy and law. That's why we made this podcast, Seatmates, and we're so happy you've joined us. Welcome to today's episode, Power for the People. Rick, can you tell me a little bit about what we're up to with transitioning our power utility to a consumer-owned utility? It's a big issue in the in the news a lot right now is a bill before the legislature that would create the Pine Tree Power Company to replace the legacy uh, incumbent electricity utilities known as CMP and Versant, which is the old Bangor Hydro. So whose power is it anyway? Well, I think it's our power. It is the power of the people and for the people, which is why we're really re-examining at the legislative level and having a conversation all across the state about new models for making sure that we deliver power, and not only the power we need now, but the power we need for the future, for the increasing electrification of our economy and decarbonization of our economy. So there's two models of utility ownership. There's the investor-owned model, which is what we're currently experiencing, and that's Versant, which is owned by the city of Calgary, and CMP, which is owned by Ibadrola, which is a Spanish publicly traded corporation. So a foreign government owning the old Bangor Hydro, Versant, and a foreign uh, group of investors, Ibadrola, owning uh, CMP. So Stacy, what's the alternative to an investor-owned utility? The alternative to an investor-owned utility is a consumer-owned utility. There are nine examples in the state of Maine, and 49 states have consumer-owned utilities as part of the mix of ownership of the utility within their state. And something like 97 towns in Maine currently have uh, a consumer-owned utility serving them. Right. So the way that works is those are the ratepayers who are receiving the service are the owners of the company. And just to be clear, this is just the transmission and distribution of electricity. Correct. Years ago, we, we moved all the generation to other companies, and so we buy the electrons from some a bunch of different sources. But Versant and CMP just own the poles, the transformers, and the wires. Correct. That's right. That's what we're talking about. So you basically either have in owners that are distant investors that are maximizing profits, or you have owners that are consumers that are local and local control. So Stacy, how do these two different ownership models um, affect how we are able to control our energy future? That's a great question. Controlling our energy future is going to be imperative as we decarbonize Maine's energy economy. Some argue that the transition could stall the efforts to decarbonize, and others feel it's essential to be invested in our own grid to make the transition. The potential value of the grid as we move to an electrified, renewable model will exponentially increase. We'll need a substantial investment in our grid infrastructure to provide the roughly three times more electrical power that Maine needs to address climate change. So, Rick, a while ago, you forwarded me an email from a constituent as we were talking about Pine Tree Power and we were talking about the bill as it before it before we both signed on. Can you tell me a little bit about that email and about Nicole and Austin? 
Yeah, you know, there are so many stories about people who are suffering under our current ownership model for these utilities. And uh, in fact, there's class action lawsuits going on about the metering issues, the billing issues at CMP. It's been a, a long and, and, and troubling history recently. The uh, story of Nicole in Austin is pretty gripping, and I, I think we'll let Nicole tell her own story. My name is Nicole Locke, and I'm a resident of Porter, Maine. I live in a two-bedroom mobile home with my two children and my boyfriend, Austin Haley. The pandemic has created some financial difficulties for us and led to both of my children having to learn remotely from home. For years now, our CMP bill has been incredibly high. We have tried disputing our bills and had our meters checked for accuracy. We have replaced our water pump. We have also replaced our washer and furnace with eco-friendly models and own an apartment-sized dryer. We line dry our clothing in the summer. We shut off lights and appliances to try to reduce our usage, but it's made no difference. We have had power outages occur from weather as well as for no reason, and we were still billed during that time. We had a disconnection notice for May 12th. We made a $100 payment to CMP that day and explained our situation to them. We asked them to apply the payment to the current bill to avoid disconnection. We told them we would continue to pay $100 monthly as that payment generously reflects the usual amount of our past accurate bills. They told us we had to enter into a payment arrangement for the past due balance that we have disputed in order to avoid disconnection. Since making that payment, our power has not been disconnected. However, it has been very stressful to live under a cloud of uncertainty, not knowing if or when CMP will shut our power off. Without electricity, my children will not be able to attend school. We will lose all sources of heat and water as we have a well and require an electric pump. We will lose all of the food in our freezer and refrigerator that was just filled. We will have no way to keep perishable foods and lose the majority of our means to cook. I'm trying to go back to work. However, I had carpal tunnel release surgery last month and the incision is not closing properly. I'm not sure why our power bills randomly went from under $100 to up to over $400 some months, when the only changes we have made should have reduced our usage. We have attempted to file a dispute with the MPUC as well. They sent someone out to test our meter and said it was accurate. I wonder how there are so many people in Maine fighting incredible bill increases and no one can do anything to hold CMP accountable. Our situation may be hard, but there are people out there who literally cannot survive without power. Something has to be done for the people of Maine. So the problem is we have to make three times the investment in our grid in order to decarbonize. We have a foreign-owned utility that doesn't provide reliable service and offers our consumers bad customer service. These electricity companies, these current utilities, the investor-owned utilities, are simply not serving the needs of Mainers. They've got reliability problems. Bad customer service. They're not making the investments uh, that they need to make uh, a better future for, for people of Maine. Welcome to Seatmates. Rich Silkman is joining us this afternoon, and he's been spending lots of time thinking about energy in Maine and a lot put a lot of effort into um, helping us understand more thoughtfully the benefits of a consumer-owned utility. Welcome, Rich. It's good to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you've done? I'm an economist. been in Maine for about 40 years now. Um, have taught at the university level, ran the state planning office uh, when Jock McKernan was governor, uh, and since then have been doing consulting work in the field of energy primarily, but utilities more generally. Back in 2000, started a company called Competitive Energy Services here in Portland, and we now represent <clears throat> probably 
four or five hundred clients around the country. We buy energy for them. We provide energy consulting services to them. Um, together, they spend a little bit over two billion dollars a year on energy, which we help them procure. So, we've been in the energy field for quite a while, and have done pretty much everything in the field uh, up here in Maine. And how did we end up in Maine with the energy model that we have with CMP and Versant? A lot of it is historical accident, um, but the primary way in, to think about this is you had to go back to the turn of the 1900s, so the turn of the 20th century, when uh, the concept of dynamos and electric generating stations were first being developed, and river power was what was used to power those generators. Um, Walter Wyman in the Augusta area, Mesolonsky area, started, among others, um, a company to put a dam on a river, use the generator to provide some limited service to a few residents nearby. And Wyman, among a number of his contemporaries, uh, was unique in that he had the foresight to develop that system out beyond simply the reach of the neighbors. And over time, he ended up acquiring and buying out a lot of the other generating plants that existed as separate, very, very tiny, small um, utilities in the the CMP service territory until by, give give or take, by World War II, CMP became what it became um, at that time. So, Rich... uh Fast forward to now, uh, how, how did our crucial energy infrastructure like CMP and the old, old Bangor Hydro come to be foreign-owned? And there's a little bit of a different story, I think, with respect to both of those. Um, CMP was bought by Energy East around 2000. Energy East was an entity that owned utilities in New York and a gas utility in Connecticut. The model that they were looking for or looking towards was becoming larger to take advantage of the scale economies associated with billing and providing service. Ibadrola bought Energy East in the mid-2000s, and the reason they bought them was because they wanted the income stream. Um, Ibadrola has developed a lot of renewable energy in this country, and the way in which you maximize the value of the renewable energy is you use the federal tax credits. But it doesn't do you any good if you don't have taxable income. And as a Spanish utility, Ibadrola had no domestic, that is, U.S. income. So what it did was it bought Energy East as a way of getting U.S. income to support its wind developments in this country. Mm. Um, the other, Emera, bought Bangor Hydro. Emera was Nova Scotia Power. And it bought Emera along with a number of other utilities, one of them in Florida, the others in the Bahamas, <clears throat> as a way of trying to broaden its base and utilize its core competencies in running electric utilities in Nova Scotia uh, to take advantage of opportunities that existed elsewhere along the East Coast. Um, Emera ultimately sold, and they've had a different business model moving forward, and they sold off their main operations to Calgary. So 
your research was instrumental in making the argument in favor of a consumer-owned utility. Can you share with us a little bit about your thoughts around cost savings potential for ratepayers? Sure. The primary savings arises from the capital structure of the utilities. When you're a commercially owned, investor-owned utility, you have stockholders, and stockholders demand a higher return for their investments in the company, largely to compensate them for what they perceive as risk. Not unlike what you, anybody would do if they were buying into a company, you know, AT&T, Verizon, you know, they're looking for returns on that equity that they're investing in the companies. Consumer-owned utilities don't have stockholders. What happens instead is they issue debt and the debt is less expensive than the equity. And so to the extent that you convert from an investor-owned utility to a consumer-owned utility, you have access to less expensive sources of capital. And that's where the primary savings comes from. Great. You you know, Rich, um, you've spent a great deal of time uh, as we know, contemplating utilities and energy policy. Can you talk a bit about uh, this Pine Tree Power, which is the proposed consumer-owned utility, and decarbonization? One of the things that becomes apparent when you think about the, the decarbonizing Maine's economy is that you have to get away from gasoline, natural gas, heating oil, those fossil fuels. And the way you do that is through electrification. The process is often referred to as beneficial electrification. So electric vehicles, electric trucks, um, air source heat pumps for your home heating facilities, and other technologies that substitute electricity for fossil fuel. But it doesn't do you any good if you only electrify. What you have to do is you have to convert your electric industry to renewable energy. And the process that that entails requires significant investments in two things. One is generating plants, offshore wind projects, onshore wind, solar, all of the things that generate electricity without carbon. But the other is increasing the size of the grid. You know, when you have electric vehicles that have to be charged, that's a bigger demand on the grid. When you have home heating oil that gets displaced and people are using electricity, you now need a much bigger grid. And that bigger grid is going to cost a lot of money in the form of investment. And that's the 10 to $15 billion uh, that you quote in your research is the cost to upgrade our grid to make it future ready. Is that right? That's correct. And when we start spending that kind of money and making those kinds of investments, if we can do it using less expensive capital through the consumer-owned utility, then it will become more affordable for us to move down towards closer and closer to zero carbon. So this is really, at one level, in, in the primary level, is this is about managing costs during this transition. Mm-hmm. And so some of the blowback has been that as we are in this 
chaotic time of transitioning to a decarbonized energy future that if we don't get the pine tree power transition right, that it's going to be double chaos. Could you talk a little bit about how that would play out? Well, whenever anybody doesn't want a change in the economy or a change in society, <clears throat> the boogeyman is always chaos. <laughs> but yet, you know, we we make changes. That's right. You know, we, we've gone from horse and buggies to cars. Yep. And, you know, originally when we made that changeover, there was a fair amount of chaos. I mean, cars sharing the road with horses was a difficult thing to sort out, but ultimately we got through it. That's right. Um, you know, we opened up telecommunications from the old Bell Monopoly system to competition. And the concern at AT&T was all of this competition and this new equipment on the grid was going to collapse the grid and it was going to create chaos. Well, in point of fact, what it created was innovation and the Internet and telecommunications revolutions and so on. We've become much better as a result. So another boogeyman we hear about, uh, Rich, is uh, CMP keep, keeps using this figure of $13 billion when they talk about the cost of buying their assets. Uh, it's a confusing as to what that exactly means. Is that for both CMP and uh, Versant? And where did they get this number from? Well, <clears throat> the best is always to ask CMP where they got the number from because I'm not <laughs> sure where it came from. I believe that the way they got that number was they said that today the net book value of the two companies combined is around $5 billion. They think that in order to buy them, you have to pay twice the net book value, which is $10 billion. Mm -hmm. But that this isn't going to happen overnight, and between now and when this transaction might ultimately close, they will probably make another $2 billion of investments in the grid, for which we're going to have to pay $4 billion to buy them, and we get to $14 billion. But it's a silly number. I mean, it's, you know, when you look across the country at all transactions that occur, there's a market for those transactions. Buyers pay what things are worth, sellers sell things for what they're worth, and transactions occur. I'd love to sell my business for twice its book value. That would be great. And, and you know, and, and there are some businesses that do sell for twice their book value. You know, Tesla, for instance, is selling for many multiples of its book value because it has a, a future that it can take it to space. You know, it can take it into solar panels. It can take it into battery systems and, of course, automobiles. And so when you buy a share of Tesla, you're buying that future. Mm-hmm. But the electric utility is very prescribed in what it can do. Mm -hmm. I mean, Central Maine Power Company cannot go out and put poles and wires in, in Montana. I mean, it's restricted to its service territory in Maine. Right. It, it also can't go out and build cars. It has to do poles and wires. It can't even invest in solar generation <clears throat> because we've restricted what the utility can do. It can't go out and buy people heat pumps or electric toaster ovens or air conditioning units for their homes. All it can do is what it's prescribed by law to be able to engage in. And so when you look at CMP and you say, well, what is the company worth 
it's really not worth an awful lot more than its netbook value, if any more than its netbook value. Mm-hmm. And so what about all of this keeps you up at night? Well, ultimately, the issue is I tell people, you know, we live down on Pine Point, and my house sits at 16 feet above mean low tide, not high tide, mean low tide. And so if we don't deal with climate change and we aren't able to prevent the oceans from rising, um, I may not go out in the first wave, that may be Bangladesh, but I'm pretty close behind it. Mm-hmm. in terms of the second wave. And, you know, it would be nice to be able to think that, you know, my grandchildren can use the house and enjoy the beach and take full advantage of Maine during the summertime. About 15 years ago, I would have put the odds of my grandchildren being able to use the beach house at pretty close to 100%. Um, today, I'm beginning to think it's closer to 50-50, and it's highly unlikely they'll be able to use it for their entire lifespan simply because we're not dealing with climate change the way we have to. Well, uh, Rich, you, you've got a dynamic state senator named Stacey Brenner fighting for you down there in Pine Point <laughs> in Scarborough. Um, well, she's inland, though. She's, she's got a, a few more years before the tidal right. wave takes her out. But I do surf at your beach, and uh, so I, I love it down there. Yes. Rich, it's been great to have you with us today. I really appreciate and we both appreciate your being on Seatmates for this important discussion. Well, it's a nice thing that you guys are doing. I hope that you can expand it and bring more of your colleagues along. We've got the problem. What are our solutions? What are we going to do about it? What's the policy fix? Tell me about the bill that um, we both signed on to. The bill, which is shorthand known as an act to create the Pine Tree Power Company, just as we sit here today, uh, received a favorable vote out of committee. Nine to two. Nine to two. And it's going on to the full legislature and the governor's desk. And then if it survives all that, it will be going to the voters in November. We're expecting a relatively robust anti-consumer-owned utility campaign from the the incumbents the are incumbents. already ramped up millions of dollars of spending mischaracterizing this bill. And the, what do they what do they call it? The first thing government they call takeover? it is government <laughs> controlled power. Yep. I think importantly, people should read the bill because this isn't about the government taking over power. It's about the consumers, the ratepayers, the people affected by these uh, two utilities actually taking control of their own future. Can you walk through the governance structure? How will the board be made up of Pine Tree Power if this passes? Yes, I think what is really happening with the bill is that this whole ownership structure changes. Uh, As Rich Silkman told us, uh, the financial model works a lot better. And then the control of the company works a lot better, too, because instead of having distant shareholders in foreign lands deciding what investments are going to be made, we will have a board of locally elected people, representative of the ratepayers, uh, seven members elected by the ratepayers. Those seven will then choose four additional uh, directors who will be appointed for their expertise, how they fill in the gaps of the governance structure, what the needs of the board are to make good decisions. The other aspect of this is that the workforce for these two companies are going to continue to be employed. They're going to continue to do the good work that they do on the ground. So So we'll continue to stay invested in our talent, our personnel that currently work for CMP and Versant. 
Exactly. And as we heard the from... The line workers and the folks on the phone and the folks that write our bills up. And as we heard from uh, Rich, the, there's going to be a lot of cost savings mm-hmm. uh, to ratepayers, as well as capital remaining for future-proofing our electrical grid. The workers don't change. There's a strong investment in personnel, and the management for the company would be bid out. Right. And so um, the board will hire a professional management group, a team, maybe a company, to come in on a contractual basis and manage the operations of the utility. And by the way, this utility will cover both the Versant and the CMP coverage area. So those are the, the, the rate payers who will be part of the new customers of the Pine Tree Power Company. The existing consumer-owned utilities that exist in Maine will stay as they are, functioning, saving the ratepayers' money, having the better reliability uh, that, they, that they've been enjoying. Next up, this bill lands first in the House, and then it'll come up to the Senate, and we'll get a chance to debate it on the floor, and hopefully it will sail through. Make it to the governor's desk. If yep. she signs it, it will go to the public for their vote in a referendum in November. Stay tuned for more details about Power for the People and the Pine Tree Power Company. You can visit us at seatmatespodcast.com for more information and most especially to sign up for Our Power, which is the grassroots movement to support the Pine Tree Power Company. So, Rick, the governor has taken away the mask mandate. And um, so now we're all walking around with our faces uncovered. What so far for you has been your best mask-free experience? <laughs> I have to say that the best experience was attending church uh, last Sunday when we decided that it, uh, as long as you're vaccinated, feel free to attend the service without a mask. And there was just so much joy in the sanctuary. It was just wonderful to see people's faces, to see them smile, and to and to share the fellowship that's special in our in our church family. What about you, Stacey? What was uh, the best mask-free experience you've had? <laughs> My husband, John, and I went out to dinner at Woodford's Food and Beverage in Portland, and uh, we ran into lots of friends. I loved seeing their smiles. I got a little teary, and um, I bought him a big bucket of tulips to thank him for having us and being open again. And um, it was just so good to be out. And I, I love seeing people smile. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. Now, you know, you know, the legislature's winding down as we speak. And there's been some bills that have actually been voted out. A lot are still waiting. But what has come out of the legislature that you're particularly excited about? Well, I have two bills that I've worked on that I'm excited about. One is through the Senate, but not yet through the House, and that's a healthy soils bill. The second is a bill that would um, mandate insurance companies reimburse certified midwives for their services, um, and that has been voted out and signed by the governor. Very personal to you, given your background. That's right. And how about for you? Well, I'm particularly excited about a bill which um, has the promise to take this wasting asset um, called the Mountain Division Railroad, which runs from Portland to the New Hampshire line in Freiburg. And it's been unused now for 40 years. And it's owned by the state. And we're now going to, thanks to this bill, getting a unanimous committee vote and hopefully clear sailing in the House and Senate, uh, we're going to actually look at that and uh, build 
uh, complete actually a trail system along the through the mountains and, uh, and across the lakes and next to the rivers of western Maine. It's very exciting. About 28 more miles of trail has the promise to be built. That's great. I can't wait. Our next episode, Trash Talk, we're going to go back into our committee work and we're going to talk about extended producer responsibility and where all the waste lands when we're done with it. I'm looking forward to talking trash with you. (laughs) And I'd like to say thank you to the Bennett Radio Group, no relation, and particularly producer Mark Turcott. And if you want further information, please visit us at seatmatespodcast.com.